Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. London's largest architecture event, Open House Festival, launches 2023 programme. More media culture wars break out over low-traffic neighbourhoods. Extraordinary 1960s synagogue and Holocaust memorial under threat of demolition in Brighton. And it's architecture award season. What do the short and long lists for this year's gongs tell us about practice today? My name is Saiba Chudder. I'm an architect and partner at Cullinan Studio, and I'll be interrogating this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guests this week here at Bureau in the Design District are Jim Stevenson and Sophia Smith. Jim is an award-winning architectural photographer and filmmaker. Sophia is a writer and photographic artist, and together they run a small film studio called Stevenson And. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Last week, Open City's much-anticipated Open House Festival revealed its 2023 programme, boasting a phenomenal range of buildings and spaces in a lineup which promises to champion access, learning and celebration. The full programme of buildings, open walks and guided tours is available now on the Open House website, offering a novel edition this year, an interactive map that illuminates the locations of festival sites distributed across the city. Spanning two weekends this autumn, running from the 6th to the 17th September, this year's programme celebrates the best of London's homes, architecture and neighbourhoods. Notable among them is a guided expedition through Eight Stoneleigh Terrace in Camden, built during the golden era of Camden public housing under borough architect Sidney Cook and designed by Erno Goldfinger's classmate Peter Tabori. Further enriching this lineup is the Grade 2 listed Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley. This gem, which is one of the oldest cinemas in the UK, features a barrel vaulted ceiling and an array of Art Deco wall reliefs by Mollo and Egan. Other must-see events in this year's festival include Tomorrow's Built Today, an oral history exhibition of Europe's largest black-led community self-build, Nubia Way, in Bromley, and the Grade 1 listed modernist apartment block, High Point, designed by Bertold Lebeckin. The guest curators who have lent their distinct voices to 2023's open house hail from an array of backgrounds within the realm of the built environment. Their carefully curated festival collections explore diverse themes and narratives from within their own practice and experiences of architecture and the built environment. Jim and Sophia's collection reflects their interest in inclusive and accessible spaces designed to be used by everyone. With a distinct absence of any private houses or grand office buildings, their collection showcases community-used spaces that aren't your ordinary examples of investment in people and places. 
You can browse the full programme of more than 1,000 drop-in events on the Open City website now. All tours, events and openings are free to attend and there are 2,000 ballot tickets available for some of the most popular locations, including 10 Downing Street, the BT Tower and the Alexandra Road Estate. Firstly, Jim, can you tell our listeners a bit about your collection and your decision to highlight community spaces over private residences? Why is community investment something that you and Sophia decided to put so much emphasis on? Well, we were over the moon to be invited to do a list and because we visit a lot of buildings in our work and quite often we're just going from one to the other and making a film or taking photographs and it's great to experience the buildings like that but to actually sit down and, and collate a list is a very different thing and think about them, reflect on them I suppose is, is a very different thing. So we looked at so many buildings and so many themes and we did look at private houses and we did look at lots of other different types of buildings that we thought we wanted to include but in this list because open house is, is such a brilliant public face for architecture it's a great opportunity for architects uh, and buildings to present themselves to a wider public outside of the industry we just wanted to highlight to some of those people who aren't in the industry some of these fantastic buildings and we wanted to make a list that was full of buildings that people could go to during the festival but then go to the next week and the next mm-hmm. week and maybe they become a part of their life and and they you know they take their friends there and we didn't want it to be through the keyhole we wanted it to be you know more of a something that people can return to and maybe take a little ownership of those buildings over time because they're community spaces that's that's a great aspiration um and i'm gonna ask you to be specific um sophia if you could pick just one building or space from that collection what would it be and why my personal favorite on our list is the crystal palace park and that's mainly because i have so many fond childhood memories of it but also because it's one of the places on our list that still needs funding and Bromley Council has got some funding in place to rejuvenate the area, but it really needs people to keep going so that the places stay in use, especially like the Sports Centre, um, which is a really old, weird building that's worth going to just for fun. Um, I also have a really soft spot for Leebridge Library, which is a really beautiful space to spend time in. Great. I mean, I love this covert thing of trying to get more more feet on the ground through these these buildings. I think that's um, that's great. Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you, how has your experience as an architectural photographer and filmmaker fed into this collection? We film and photograph so many different types of buildings. So we don't just photograph community projects, but we quite often get asked what our favourite type of building is. And a lot of the time we say it's the type of buildings that we wanted to work on. So often they end up being those community buildings. What we find when we, you know, it's it's lovely going to document a a beautiful house or something like that. But when we photograph a community space or when we document a community space, there's an energy in there that's, is really infectious and contagious and you you get dragged along with it so last week for instance we were up at um the tng uh, community space in sydenham filming there and it was an exhausting day it was so much to do so much kit to carry around so much going on we wiped out by the end of the day but the energy just kept us going we were buzzing through the whole time by the time we finished um so yeah i think we wanted to hopefully give the visitors some of that energy as well. So it felt natural to choose community spaces from the projects that we filmed in the past. That's great. It's kind of like a counterpoint between, 
you know, what you can capture in film and photography and what you can't possibly capture. And you're able with this collection to allow people to get that extra, extra layer of experience. Sophia, why, why do you think architecture is something everyone should co connect with? You know, the Open House Festival is just as popular with people outside the built environment sector as it is with architects and designers. So, you know, where does the value lie for people who aren't embedded in this sector? Every day, we all, as we engage with society, engage with architecture, whether we realise it or not. And I think psychologically, we're all affected by architecture and the spaces that we inhabit, whether we realise it or not. And I think what Open House, the festival, offers is an opportunity for people to experience new types of architecture and learn how they are affected by architecture themselves. And as a good example, um, Jim and I, we went to Oslo for the first time and we visited the Snoetta Opera House, which is on the waterfront there. And I was really struck by the amazing open space that's in front of the Opera House. And we were there for four days and we went back every day because we were really drawn to the way that the general public were allowed to use that space. It was really open, sort of deep shallow steps where you know anyone could just spend time and that image has really stuck with me for the years that we've been working together it was the first time I'd really acknowledged or been able to recognize what a new building could provide for the public and I think that's what what we look for in our work and what we hope that this festival and our collection can offer the wider public, like spaces that they can discover that they are able to use, um, you know, in their everyday life. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great aspiration. I think there's so many of these gems across London that people aren't aware of. As a visitor in previous years, I've found it kind of overwhelming to know what to pick. So, um, you know, how do you think these curatorial threads kind of help with that festival overwhelm? It is a lot. I think everyone looks at it. I mean, the, the great thing about the festival is how much there is to do, but it's also a really overwhelming thing when you look at the website and you start clicking through and you end up writing a list, your own private list of 200 things and you've, you don't, definitely don't have the time to do it all. So hopefully the lists just give a little suggestion. I know the, uh, I've seen the other lists as well, which are fantastic and they have themes as well. So they're just a little, you know, a little hint or a little move in a certain direction if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by the amount on there. Um, and, and you can sort of pick your themes according to, to what you're into. I know one of the other lists that we're looking forward to exploring is uh, based on food. So that'll be a good one as well. On to our next story. And the 20th Century Society has made a listing application in a bid to prevent the demolition of the 1968 Brighton & Hove Reform Synagogue and its extraordinary stained glass windows. This was reported by the AJ this week. The 55-year-old building, designed by Derek Sharp Associates, is unique in the UK, according to the Heritage Group, because it serves both as a Holocaust memorial and a place of worship. The striking feature of the synagogue is the 12-metre-long stained-glass window depicting scenes from Revelations, designed by artist John Pett, who is best known for the Wales window at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Art historian Alison Smith described it as, quote, one of the great religious artworks of the 20th century 
and the Society says it has echoes of Picasso's seminal painting Guernica from 1937 in the way it, quote, articulates the personal, emotional and historical dimensions of modern warfare and the atrocities it has engendered. Earlier this year, it was reported that members of the congregation had voted to sell the site to a local developer, Perth Securities, which planned to flatten the existing building and redevelop the plot. Plans by local practice CPL chartered architects indicate that in its place would be a block of flats and a new smaller synagogue. The only listed post-war synagogue in England is a synagogue at Carmel College in South Oxfordshire, which was built in 1963 by Thomas Hancock. The Society says it strongly believes the Brighton and Hove Reform Synagogue has, quote, clear historical significance, architectural merit and communal value, and has recommended it for grade two listening. So... Sophia, you and Jim used to live just down the road from this synagogue. Um, can you describe what the building's like? Uh, do you think it's worthy of protection? We used to live just five minutes from it um, for about 10 years. I mean, first of all, I should say, I don't think anybody should be discussing demolishing a um, Holocaust memorial. I think that should render the whole thing a moot point. But setting that aside for a moment um yeah the building itself is quite strange from the outside and jim and i have talked a lot you know having walked past it day in and day out for years um it has had this perpetually neglected look about it a bit like a kind of campsite disco from the 80s you know it it felt really underused and listening to you describe the windows makes me so sad that we've never been allowed to be inside it. Um, I'd love to see that as a person who's interested in art. You know, I don't think demolition is ever the answer. You know, the most environmentally friendly building is one that already exists. I mean, yeah, we walked past it like once a week for, you know, 10, 15 years, at least once a week. And I, I think, you know, it is an impressive building from the outside. It's got these amazing barrel vaults and it's got these hit and miss brick. It's actually... It looks like it could, it should be really, well, it is a really beautiful building, but I don't th- remember seeing people come in and going that much. And it, well, it didn't, never struck me as that busy. And about 10 years ago, we were putting together a map um, for publication of Brighton's best 20th century buildings. And we really wanted to include it. And we actually, we were emailing and messaging on Facebook and trying to find a way to contact them, the people who were running the synagogue. And we just received no response. So it was a real shame. But I am definitely the kind of person that walks into buildings that look interesting. And we never got in that building. So I, I, I do, it made me wonder how much it was being used. To kind of pick up on, on both of those points, do you think I mean, this kind of ties into a wider view of, of buildings that are um, being threatened for demolition and the kind of period of time that it takes to get through the kind of te- contentious issues around this and that the buildings end up being disused, falling into more disrepair in a sort of pattern of willful negligence? Do you think that that needs to be kind of policed or do you think that that contributes then to more of these buildings being demolished? Yeah, I do think that it's a pattern. It's a willful kind of, like you said, disuse of something. Um, I was really surprised to read that it has a 400-seat capacity because there's several venues in the area that are, you know, there's a church just up the road that is open for gigs during Brighton Festival and things like that. Brighton is in desperate need of more venue space, more kind of community art space. It could really be used for something like that. Um, But obviously... I also understand the pressure, financial pressure, of keeping something up together that's that's in need of love and care. I think the Jewish Chronicle reported that they had sort of 300 members of the synagogue, but 
only about 30 people were actually turning up regularly, which seems a real shame. But those 30 people love it and they must have their reasons as well for wanting to demolish it and replace it with with something else. There are two synagogues very close within a five-minute walk of, of, this, of the Reform Synagogue and they, from our outside perspective, always appeared to be more active and, and busier. Um, but how do you stop people demolishing things? You engender some sort of community pride in it, you know... I think the synagogue is actually sort of, you know, well-loved, but it's just well-loved by a very small amount of people who aren't enough people to fill the space. But it does feel like it could be used for something else. There are other buildings that have a, that serve a primary purpose, like a religious purpose, but are still well-used by the wider community. They might have a cafe in there or they might be used, like you were saying, by like as a concert space or an art space or a community space. Mm-hmm. You, you guys are talking about retrofitting this building for another use for, for a different kind of programming. And Jim, you've travelled extensively and probably seen some amazing retrofit projects around the UK. Are there any standout examples you can share? I mean, there's there's so many where it's done really well. And actually, it'd be really great to organise a tour of these for people who are thinking about demolishing a building. Go on a tour because you can't help but be inspired by t in Wrexham, by Sarah Featherstone Architects. is fantastic. It's a car park, or it was a car park, and now it's a marketplace. It's an art gallery, it's shops, it's, it's a community space. It's fantastic. Jubilee Pools in Penzance is another one, uh, you know, a building that was well-loved by the community but was underused and now is, is packed and people book ahead to go to those pools. And Edinburgh Printmaker, is a real favourite as well um, by Page Park, a building that had been empty for a long time and was probably at risk of demolition and now has artist studios, it has galleries, it has a cafe, it has shops, it has community space, it has a garden out the back. Um, so it has everything everything that you would want to go to that area or to come into that area of Edinburgh. So there are really great examples of how to do it out there. There's so many great examples, um, and that's, which I think may, means that the case for demolition has to be utterly watertight before you can start removing bricks from a building, let alone, you know, a Holocaust memorial. Low-traffic neighbourhoods known as LTNs have rapidly become the new front of the culture war debate. This week, local paper Southwark News reported that Lambeth Council officers refused to meet with Waterloo pensioners over the issue. Residents of a nearby LTN were informed by the local authority that councillors would not be attending public meetings after they explained that these consultations had turned, quote, unrepresentative and hostile, raising concerns of, quote, intimidation and abuse against staff. The issue surrounds traffic restrictions affecting a nearby road, resulting in what local residents have described as a rat-run issue. The LTN scheme, operating in the area locally known as The Cut, underwent revisions based on feedback from numerous residents' comments and surveys, and has seen cycling double and vehicle numbers slashed in the area. However, traffic on some nearby roads has reportedly increased by 100%. Meanwhile, The Guardian published a very different article this week, warning that the review of LTN announced by Rishi Sunak two weeks ago, risks turning quiet residential streets and housing estates into new rat runs if their traffic restrictions are lifted. So far, the Department for Transport has refused to specify who will run the LTN inquiry and where it will begin. However, campaigners have raised concerns that the scope of the review could extend well beyond the 200 LTNs put in place during the pandemic. Simon Monk, the head of campaigns for the London Cycling Campaign, said, quote, We've seen modal filtering since the advent of the motor car. Pretty much every housing estate since the war was built on the principle of not allowing through traffic. Is there a cut-off date for any of this? 
He goes on to say, it's a culture war wedge issue fomented by politicians who seemingly want to distract attention from bigger woes. So, Sophia, what's your experience of traffic calming measures? Have you ever lived in or near one? And how do you think they impact the local community? We haven't lived directly in a, a low traffic neighbourhood, but we we noticed the impact of the lockdown on the area where we used to live in Brighton. Essentially, the whole area became low traffic because people just weren't driving their cars on a very busy junction that we lived near. And it, it is a massive impact. And Ultimately, I don't know why anyone would hear the idea of a, a low-traffic neighbourhood and not believe that it could be beneficial to the people that it affects. Yeah, I mean, picking up on that, why do you think LTNs are being presented as such an explosive issue? I mean, it's political, isn't it? They've been around for such a long time. They've not been called LTNs, but there have been some degree of traffic calming has been around since the birth of the car, basically. So it's really the... The explosive issue is the name LTN, it's not the traffic calming. And also, is it an explosive issue, really? Because there's a lot of signs that actually in voting intention isn't based around LTNs. Even in Uxbridge, where the Tories were celebrating that they had won an election based on LTNs, they there was a huge Labour swing in that election. The Tories won it by a fraction. And voting intent wasn't based around LTNs, a small fraction. So I think what we see is a small group of people in the media and some car drivers making a big deal about it and shouting quite loudly about it, but actually it's not that big a deal. And we see this across the whole of the ridiculous culture war that we're supposed to be in at the moment with lots of different issues. And But I think what's interesting is there's a Venn diagram between people who will post pictures on Twitter of empty streets in the 50s with children playing in the streets and say, oh, it was so much better in my day. And people will tell you that LTNs are a terrible, awful thing for the economy and for them. And actually what they're talking about is a minor inconvenience for them that actually could have such an impact on local communities, but also health, public health as well, you know, lower traffic fumes. You know, I see that point definitely. But I think this particular article, we've, you know, we covered this story on the show a few times. Um, and this is the, the first one that kind of shows a butterfly effect of like something negative happening as a result of an LTN with like rerouting traffic. So is there, in this instance, at least, uh, an image of solving one problem and creating another? I mean, yeah, there definitely is a knock on effect. I mean, I suppose... LTNs don't really reduce the number of cars on the road. They just reduce where those cars are. So the LTNs probably have to be instigated as part of a wider impetus to get more cars off the road as well, no matter if they're electric or diesel or petrol cars. I mean, as you've already pointed out, they're not a new phenomenon. Um, you know, Simon Monk from the London Cycling Campaign, he said, you know, there's, there's more than 25,000 uh, modal filters across the UK. So that, for those of us that don't know what that means, is uh, you know, traffic control measures like camera-enforced signs, physical barriers like bollards and planters. And these have been like a routine part of traffic planning since the 60s. So why do you think this is becoming such a big issue now? With you know, You've already um, mentioned there might be kind of a political um, aspect to this. Um, you know, is this is it really a distraction technique, do you think? I mean, I think it is, and anyone who doesn't think it is just isn't paying attention properly, in my opinion. The divisive rhetoric of the government on so many issues now in creating, you know, this culture war and in inverted commas, it's just a way to give people the feeling that they can be in control of something and have an opinion about something that they might be able to control when actually they're losing control on so many 
much wider issues in society like soaring rent prices or energy costs or the cost of living. It's just another thing that's presented to us as something that you can have an opinion on and maybe have an effect on the outcome of. And as we talked about before, we're in a really, really privileged position at the moment to be able to choose these minor inconveniences in our lives. And I don't think it'll be very long before the choices are taken out of our hands completely if we're talking about the environmental impact of cars in general. Um, And there are plenty of people around the world at the moment that are devastatingly without that choice. Things are happening to them because of the environment and the inconvenience is fatal, you know? And we we have to be able to recognise that we're lucky to be able to have this conversation. I mean, you've already picked up the wider issues around this. And so zooming out more, you know, thinking about access to well-designed public spaces, this is an issue that's close to both of your hearts. So can you tell me what are some of the best interventions or restrictions or initiatives you've seen on residential streets that enhance community life or enhance community interactions? And if, if you both were put in the driver's seat of traffic policy making, what kind of ideas would you put on the table? I think, first of all, there is, a, there is a thing where we can't seem to see past the current state. But we have seen in other cities, other densely populated, traffic-heavy cities like Paris and like Amsterdam was, you know, 30 years ago, that it is possible to change these things. And it doesn't actually ruin a city. Paris still exists very well, and so does Amsterdam. We, you can change things and still have business and industry, and people can still get from A to B and and visit their friends and go to the park without having to drive everywhere. So I think the first instance is, is finding a way to look beyond the status quo and move on from that. I mean, there are some really great examples. I remember we did a film a while back of, of the King's Crescent Estate um, in East London that Henley Hale Brown and Karakusevich Carson architects worked on together. And they worked with Muff architects for some of the landscaping. And Muff had done this fantastic... Um, well, it's a street, it's a road, but they'd put a series of traffic calming measures in, which weren't just bollards, they were play spaces and a hammock and seating and gyms and things and cycleways. And it's quite a short piece of land, but it had an amazing impact. And we just sat there, you know, having our lunch there on a break. And we just watched, you know, kids coming to play on it. We watched people cycling on it. We watched people going past with cargo bikes who were delivering things. We watched people going past with, with the trailers with, on their bikes with kids in so doing the school run. So there's ways to do it. There's imaginative ways to change things. And it doesn't have to mean the ruin of a city, which I think is some of the fear mongering that we hear from some aspects of the media and, and some politicians. Yeah, I agree. And I think on the subject of examples of community living you know you mentioned before about interventions since in in post-war building and a really good example in central london is the the barbican you know we might go there for you know a fancy exhibition or go and see a show but actually when you really contemplate why that space was built you know it was supposed to be an example of future living and you can't access it via you know, car, you can't park near anybody's domestic space. And I think if you take the time to really walk around the whole of the Barbican, you can understand why people thought, you know, that would be the future of of living together. It's a really good example of um, campus living, essentially. 
So throughout this week, the AJ has been revealing individual shortlists for the AJ Architecture Awards. There are 21 categories totaling nearly 140 projects. Categories encompass a range of areas, including project under 500,000, infrastructure and transport, community and faith, landscape and public realm, refurb, um, and also the higher education category, for which I'm a first-time judge this year. In the transport and infrastructure category, there are some big hitters like John McCaslin and Partners, Weston Williamson and Partners, and Grimshaw, and they're all battling out for their part that they played in the long-anticipated Elizabeth Line, which opened last year in London. Um, In the mixed-use project category, Wilkinson Air's long-anticipated Bassey Power Station retrofit has been shortlisted alongside Sam Jacobs' Konstantin Melnikov-inspired house and playgroup project in Hoxton and uh, Pittman Tozer's tower in Croydon. Both of those ones have been completed last year. Uh, The full shortlist for the competition, which is now in its sixth year, is anticipated to be unveiled by the end of the week. Meanwhile, the long list for the RIBA House of the Year was published last week, featuring a remote house in the Scottish Highlands by Anne Nisbet Studio and a Grade 2 listed London pub-to-home conversion um, by Airbar Mattis. The RIBA House of the Year Award was set up in 2013 and is awarded to the best new house or house extension designed by an architect in the UK. And last year's prize went to Red House in Dorset by David Cohn Architects for their, quote, ordinary yet quirky four-bedroom family home in rural Dorset, which was 10 years in the making. Uh, So, Jim, you've covered hundreds of architectural competitions throughout your career. Why is this industry so captivated by them? And, um, you know, what purpose do they serve? Yeah, I've got to be a little bit careful about answering this, haven't I? Because so many of my clients are listed in the shortlisting and I don't want to shed clients from this podcast. I mean, I mean, honestly, I think, you know, there is a little bit of ego stroking perhaps going on a little bit and a bit of FOMO as well. You know, there is a fear that you see all your competitors being nominated for awards and you don't enter them because you don't want to and then you feel the pressure that actually maybe we we need to keep up with the Joneses a little bit but actually it is also really nice to get some peer recognition it's a bit of both I suppose I mean at best similar to the festival really they're they're the public face of architecture so it's a great opportunity for the industry to say to the public the this is the best that we can do and and in that sense we have to make sure that they really are the best that they can do and that they are the best on all levels they're the best on a social level on a kind of inventive creative level um, on an environmental level and everything else so i think it's kind of interesting i mean it is a business as well awards are a business Um, i suppose the risk is when there are so many competitions that it's difficult for each one to remain relevant and we've seen We've seen in recent years people even questioning the relevance of the Sterling Prize, which arguably has the most rigorous judging process of any of the awards. So it's important that they remain relevant. But I think the way they remain relevant is by, you know, we get the usual names every year. That's great. You know, Elizabeth Line is a fantastic addition to public transport in London. But also we need to be, the awards need to be accessible and easy to enter for smaller practices that don't have the capacity to, dedicate one person to doing awards all the time so as long as that's happening then they remain relevant and and they remain important to the industry yeah it's it's interesting what you're saying about the relevance because in my experience judging this year i'm a first-time judge so i have nothing to sort of compare it to um but something that we've seen across all the projects is actually for them to get to the point where they've been shortlisted for an award there needs to be a really good relationship between the client and the architect and that's really evident and in a way 
obviously we're celebrating the physical buildings, but it's also celebrating like the collaboration or the like effort that it took to get something that was good enough to be even shortlisted for an award. So for me, that's been the most interesting aspect. And as a practitioner myself, it's really interesting to see how other architects and their clients kind of uh, vibe off each other when they're talking about buildings. I, I love that. And I, I actually it is a chance to reflect because it is getting a building built is a stressful thing and those relationships uh, by times do become fractious and hopefully they all come together at the end sometimes not hopefully they do um we're not doing it this year but for for the previous sort of seven years i think seven eight years we've we've filmed each of the sterling prize shortlist listed projects and what whatever we feel about the, the shortlist itself what i love is going to the buildings and seeing the pride that the people that use the buildings have like so we went to last year neil mclaughlin's library at Magdalen college won it and it's this beautiful building it's but it's a very quiet like library as it should be but there was a four laminated signs which definitely weren't architect placed pinned up which were photocopies of articles in the architecture press celebrating the building and and there was you know people the librarian had written on the hand like we won or we've been shortlisted exclamation mark so there's like there is a real pride in working on a building for such a long time and having it recognized not just for the architect but also for the end users as well in the context of the worsening house crisis and cost of living and all of that um there's you know lots of awards that celebrate private buildings so like the riba house of the year project is about you know private homes um and these are very high profile competitions but should we be having new competitions that celebrate ingenious solutions to you know the other problems that we face for example could a social housing competition lead to better social housing in the country do you think yes there should be more emphasis on problem solving within the housing environment um from a personal perspective i think the thing that we'd like to see more of is like the smaller projects being pushed forward to the forefront of the real sparkling press that, that, you know, the Sterling Prize gets. I think like the AJ Small Project Awards has been consistently one of my favourite ones to sort of have an, half an eye on, not least of all because actually it gives smaller practices an opportunity to get their work recognised. And so often I think, you know, little house extensions or, you know, projects under... 200,000 say for example which are really achievable for like just normal people and small practices you know they show real like economy of design and innovation often because of the small budget and I think that's what we should be pushing forward not just the big kind of glitzy projects like you know Battersea or something. That picks up with something I've been sort of ruminating on about these awards is that sometimes within a category and you do get uh, like a really massive mega project being compared with something with a much more modest budget. So that, as a as a judge anyway, is very hard to, to compare the two because one of them has a lot of backing and, you know, usually some sort of political story or rhetoric behind it, whereas the other one is something that's, you know, a little bit niche and that's a kind of chalk and cheese moment where you're trying to sort of compare the two and judge them against each other and maybe there needs to be more subcategories so that you can kind of give a fair chance to the smaller projects. Or, or maybe... We just don't pick winners anymore. Like, I mean, we're, we've been in such a fortunate position for however many years we've been doing the Sterling Prize for going to each of the six shortlisted projects and people always ask us, which, which do you think should win? And it's just, I don't want to downplay the 
good work that the judges do and the, and the work that the winners have put into their projects, but what's the point in picking a winner? Why can't we just pick six buildings and say, these are great buildings, go and visit them? And instead of putting all that work, that because it is a lot of work, because the BBC or the RBA and it used to be the BBC, but now it's independent filmmakers go in to make a film. I used to go in to make a film uh, on a separate day, plus the judges have to do a tour. So in, instead of doing all of that work, why don't you just do an open day? Every building is required to do an open day so the public can go and experience it because not all of the buildings that get shortlisted are possible to visit. So maybe we just stop picking winners and we just start celebrating the you know, really great examples of things and we get people into the buildings rather than me with my camera. Damn it, I've just taken clients away again. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant, Okay, Um, So we're going to move on to the culture section now. Um, So we want to say good luck to all the Year 11s receiving results today. I don't know how many of them listen to the the show, but um, we are... Open City is currently recruiting for our widening participation programme, Accelerate, and looking for young people going into year 12 with an interest to the built environment to apply, um, who come from qualifying backgrounds. So it would be great to spread the word so we can um, recruit the best and brightest across London. Um, in more sort of visual arts news, there's a stunning new audiovisual exhibition set to fill the halls of the iconic St Martin and the Fields Church this winter. Um, this immersive installation is called Life and will be projected throughout the main building and crypt and tickets uh, for the 40-minute Sound and Light exhibition are available to book online now. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, transport enthusiasts will be delighted to learn that there's a 1938 Art Deco tube train which will be back out on the railway next month running uh, along the Metropolitan Line in northwest London. Um, so that train will be running on the 9th and 10th of September and take passengers between Watford and Amersham and tickets are available to book now. Uh, Jim and Sophia, you have obviously a foot in lots of cultural things and what's coming up in your cultural calendar? We just had uh, a really great run at the RBA in London of a film installation that we made, which is closed now, but we just found out it's going up to the Farrell Centre in Newcastle. So that's going to open on October the 5th, and people up there will be able to see it for about three or four months after that. And it's this installation that's based around the idea of people watching in architecture, and it features a lot of community spaces. Yeah, the film is called The Architect Has Left the Building, which is quite relevant to what we were just talking about. You know, the idea that um, the life of a building really happens after the building process has finished and the architect has waved goodbye (laughs) lovingly. (laughs) Um, And that's what our film is about. So, yeah, I mean, if you get a chance to go up and see it, it's great. (laughs) And the centre's amazing as well. And Newcastle's, you know, one of the best cities in the country, so go to Newcastle. Okay, well, I mean, it's been a pleasure to have you both on the show, so thank you much for contributing. And um, where can listeners go to follow your work and see what you're up to? Jim and I have uh, an Instagram called Stevenson and, and Jim's Instagram is... Yeah, click, click Jim and Stevenson and Cuts um, and Women Looking Out of Windows, which is Sophia's art practice. So you can check us out on Instagram there, plus website if you search us. Just get on Google. We're on there somewhere. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Anytime. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. 
If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.